0: this is the east drama cast
1: with your moderators
0: kevin Pay from the yale school of medicine dave morris from intermountain medical center in salt lake city utah
1: carrie valdez from covenant hospital in saginaw michigan and matt martin from madigan army medical center this program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and
0: Building Careers. Okay, welcome to a joint East TraumaCast slash CareerCast. I'm uh, really excited about this topic today, and it should be a, a good discussion and a good opportunity for two East Committees to kind of work together for this uh Project, so this should be really great. Uh, joining me from the CareerCast world is uh, Brad
1: Dennis. Brad,
0: thanks for doing this with us.
1: Yeah, Dave, thanks for having me.
0: So um, I should mention that the topic here is that we're going to be covering today is the training and educational development of advanced practice providers. And this topic was actually suggested to me by one of my own colleagues at Intermountain Healthcare, uh, Mr. Aaron Pugh. Aaron, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, uh, Dave. Uh, Ned, thanks for having me. Um am really
2: excited about uh, the topic and excited to be here. Um, my name is Aaron Pugh. I'm uh, one of the physician assistants of practice, uh, practices at the um, trauma center and medical center with Dr. Morris. Um, I work among a team of about a dozen now, uh, uh, advanced practice providers or clinicians, depending on which part of the country you're in. Uh, that served the trauma service there. Um, we're a 24-hour service. Um, and we practice uh, in all, at all levels of acuity, uh, both on the floor and in the ICU. And I've uh, recently, in the last couple of years, taken over um, the role as the uh, fellowship director. Um, it formerly was a residency and now is a fellowship, um, and maybe that's something worth uh, talking about as well in, in terms of all of this um of pioneering concepts about postgraduate education for, for PAs and NPs. But I've run the uh, fellowship now for the last three years. We're in our seventh year, and our job and goal was to train a PA and an NP, regardless of where he or she comes from, for an additional year in trauma and critical care. Um, and in the last year, um, we've seen a lot of growth. So thanks for having me of the excited to be Okay. Thanks,
0: Aaron. Also joining us is uh, Mr. John Messing. Uh, John, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well?
3: Hi, Dave. Uh, First, thank you for having me on the program. It's a huge honor to be able to join you guys uh, for both the Trauma Cast and the Career Cast. Uh, So uh, I'm a nurse practitioner at George Washington University Hospital in Washington, D.C., and I've been with the trauma service here for about five years now. Uh, dabbled in transplant before that, and have a critical care background as a uh, as a nurse. And we launched our first advanced practitioner residency, as opposed to fellowship, uh, a couple of years ago. Actually, we we launched our first class in the fall of twenty fifteen, and have successfully graduated one class, and we're a little bit halfway uh, through our second class and have just uh, successfully interviewed and selected, and they've accepted our third class of uh, residents for our program. And uh, so I do think that it's an interesting comment that Aaron had about the the terminology for fellowships or residencies, uh, or I guess globally some people just refer to them as transition to practice programs. Uh, it certainly makes it a little challenging when one wants to research the the outcomes of these programs and what, what's out there. But um, I'm excited to be here and look forward to the discussion.
0: Okay, great. Thank you both. It uh, should be very interesting. So right off the bat, from what you both have already said, I have a couple of brief questions, and maybe uh, John i will have you address them first. So first off, um, you hear many different uh, TLAs, three-letter acronyms, uh, used to describe what what you do and what your role is. So there's, I've heard APP, APC, uh, some some institutions use NPPA. Um, there's a bunch of different uh, uh, terminology. What, is there one that sort of unifies? Is there one that's better? Um, and certainly we will not use the dreaded term mid-level provider.
3: So I think, it, I, I'm glad that you mentioned to, to avoid the term uh, mid-level provider. That one, as well as physician extender Uh, tend to not really capture what we as uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants are capable of doing and kind of the level in which we function. Uh, And more so makes us feel like we we're going to plateau and not have much uh, room in terms of advancing our own clinical expertise and uh, experience and what we can offer our patients and our teams. Uh, For the most part, I I have heard a variety of these terms, and I, myself, have also been guilty from time to time uh, using the terms, even just conversation back and forth between uh, advanced practitioner, uh, advanced practice provider, advanced practice clinician, uh, NP, PA, nurse practitioner, physician assistant. Uh, At our institution, we tend to use advanced practitioner, or AP, it just uh, is a little bit easier. Say and tends to roll off the, the tongue for most people in, in terms of conversation. And it also is one way of uh, educating the new-to-practice uh, NPs and PAs that they're not just coming into a role to be a mid-level, but they're, a, they're an advanced practitioner. They're somebody that's going to be helping to educate uh, newer healthcare providers as they come out of their training programs and to be seen as a resource for patients and young physicians and surgeons in training as well as other younger uh, PAs and MPs. So in my uh, opinion and in the experience is that the terminology is, is really there to, to highlight what we're capable of and how we're thinking a little bit more broadly and not just coming in to, to meet those ACMG hour restrictions and those 80-hour work weeks um more as a, a great resource to the team and kind of being able to step up. So I know it sounds like some other institutions and Aaron, uh curious to hear what you guys refer to yourselves over at uh in Utah.
2: Uh John, I think you really uh um crushed it in the sense of of both uh the things that get passed around, the things that end up um uh, being in the in the day to day kind of language usage. I think um, physician extender, mid-level provider, a lot of these terms get thrown around as it relates to government documents as well um, and in both state practice and, and, and terms that were um, uh, nominated as, as general usage in legal language. And so they, I think there's some etiology there's some there in terms of their uh, descendancy. And then I think the other half of it, it, it just really goes to the it, it, it notes our novelty. Um PAs are only fifty years old, and nurse practitioners aren't that much older. Um, and I think in a lot of ways uh the their utilization in the field of subspecialty medicine is also an extremely novel concept. And so as a result, um, you know, large HMOs and and, and uh companies and healthcare provider uh groups also have had to kind of come up with a way to describe what it is exactly we do. Um the funny thing and the ironic thing is I think, um, they, you know, advanced, advanced providers have existed in numerous cultures, uh, worldwide, um, for, for many, many decades and have consistently kind of existed and, and they range from, um, you know, the, the experience of say, that the PJ medic in, in the military all the way to, um, you know, the providers that were on the ground taking care of, um, Ebola victims, uh, most recently. And I think, um, I think the idea of coming up with a single term to denote, um, you know, as you mentioned, John, you know, kind of high-quality care, practicing at the end of, uh, at the expense of our our scope, and in a more collaborative um, relationship with docs, I think uh, tends to tends to be at least in our practice the de rigueur, um, settling on a single term of advanced provider or advanced practice clinician. Um, I think ultimately will probably be the result of, of that kind of um, uh, uh, organic development, and I think it will it, probably end up end up being um, from the from the grassroots up um, to where that le- those legal documents and those, that legal language finally gets changed. Um, but I, I think in the meantime, we're kind of stuck with regional variation.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I – I, this is Brad here, sorry. Um, I like the, the advanced practitioner term. I, I agree with John. I think it kind of rolls off the tongue um, a little bit easier than some of the other uh, TLAs, uh, as Dave put it. Um, so, Aaron, let me ask you. We, we kind of talked about this in one of our previous career casts in terms of the scope of practice uh, yeah. that the advanced practitioners have. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time getting into that, but maybe if you could summarize for our listeners – sort of what it is that advanced practitioners can do, what they can't do, kind of the licensing and supervision requirements sure. um, for, for advanced think, practitioners. I think the, sure, um,
2: it's a great question, Brad. I, I think from state to state it varies, uh, but there there is uh, that fastly becoming a, a, a larger homogeny among states. Um, but the long and short of it is is when I when I have to describe myself to someone in medicine, I did kind of describe myself as a hospitalist for people to get hurt i um you know my skill set ends where uh dr morris's skill set begins in the operating room i you know i can i'm happy to provide first assist um uh abilities um but you know there's a scrub tech that's far vastly more um accommodating in that arena and i think um as advanced providers we we uh, are working alongside a surgeon from an admission of a sick and hurt patient until they're, you know, for the entirety of their acute stay. Um, you, you know, we formulate a care plan uh, daily, uh, whether that's in the trauma bay from the initial resuscitation of a patient to their discharge to a skilled nursing facility. Um, you know, in in collaboration with Dr. Morris and, and the other surgeons on the team, we are um, uh, the primary source of kind of uh, – uh, the direction of care, and I think what the, the surgeons end up doing for us um, is is uh, providing sign-off on that and providing the ability to uh, allow them more freedom and more mobility um, in terms of their
0: day-to-day. John, I know it's kind of a similar setup uh, where you are as well. You guys are basically doing it all as well, right?
3: Yeah, we, we in, uh, at George Washington University Hospital, we do have uh, – we're also an academic Institution, and we, we do have a residency uh, cohort or a group of surgical residents that rotate onto the trauma service, and uh, we we practice very similarly to what it sounds like Aaron and your group does. Uh, we basically can do everything that is necessary for our patients, to sort of operate on them. But from time to time, we will we will first assist. Uh, the major difference for us is that advantage to having a dedicated group of advanced practitioners on service uh, who really know the population and know the system, the clinical practice guidelines, and the expectations, the outcomes, what we're, we're trying to do, uh, and can provide some continuity for every resident that rotates on, you know, at the beginning of the month. Have a, a new resident. Fortunately, it's the the end of the year, so it has a little bit of a better idea as to how things roll. Uh, but still, is new to our service, and we, as the advanced practitioners, can orient that individual. Come July first.
0: a little bit about the different training paradigms. So I know there are a lot of folks, a lot of APs out there who have been doing this for a lot of years, but it seems like a lot of that is kind of organically developed. People get they hired and they get hired and then they kind of get trained up on the job and and that's that's where they get their training. But recently within the last five, ten years, there's been this emergence of dedicated formal training programs with curriculum. And maybe uh John, maybe I'll have you start first talking about uh, the development of those programs and maybe sort of the, some of the pluses and minuses and and um, of of what those training product uh, programs have to offer.
3: Sure. Uh, so uh, historically, the majority of training for advanced practitioners has been kind of this on the job training. Where if you're lucky, you'll have an orientation uh, as a new graduate, especially, and if you're very lucky, there'll be some structure to that orientation with. You know, milestones and a timeline and expectations for, for the, that orientee. Uh, alternatively, you may have no orientation and you're kind of just, you know, thrown to the, the wolves in a sense. And, uh, you'll learn by example and following along somebody and hopefully, um, get some training and education there. But often that can lead to some burnout, um, leads, lead to people leaving their, their position uh, before they would they would want to or the employer would want to, and so these the concepts of these transition to practice programs, uh, which are sometimes referred to as fellowships, sometimes referred to as residencies, uh, developed and they've actually been around for quite some time. Uh, Aaron mentions that the PA profession and same with the NP profession have been around for about fifty years, having just celebrated their, their, both of them having celebrated their 50 year anniversary. And it was, I believe in 1971 that the first postgraduate program uh, developed. And that was out of, uh, I wanna say it was Montefiore Medical Center. Um, And there've been a couple of other programs that have popped up for physician assistants, uh, culminating in this group that uh, developed in 1988 um, out of the, the AAPA, and what they developed was the Association of Postgraduate Physician Assistant Programs, or APAP, sometimes people pronounce it APAP, and uh, that group has been around for uh, quite some time for, for PAs. And recently, there's been another organization that's developed uh, called AFGAP, or the Association of Postgraduate APRN Programs. And both of these programs are, exist to, to help develop and foster these transition to practice programs. With the idea that somebody comes out of school and, you know, uh, perhaps they want to go into a field that they didn't get a lot of experience in in school, or maybe it's just a field that there's much more involved, such as critical care and trauma, and they can have a structured training program over the course of, uh, Twelve months on average. Most of these programs are a year long. Uh, some of them are shorter. Some of them are a little bit longer to really get those those uh, advanced practitioners and those new graduates the training that they need to to appropriately care for a challenging population. Uh, back in back in the 60s and the 70s, so many of the the physician assistants graduating from programs had extensive medical training as medics and many nurse practitioners had, you know, many years of uh, extensive nursing experience before they went to NP school. And so it, it wasn't – there wasn't a lot necessary to get these, these individuals off the ground and running and caring for uh, caring for some very sick, challenging patient populations. More recently, it seems that there are a lot more nurse practitioners that are coming through with very little bedside, sometimes no bedside experience, uh, and then also sometimes some physician assistants that come through with uh, perhaps not as much uh, experience in the medical field before they started school. So there are a couple advantages to these programs just right off the bat. To help them prepare for this population. Okay, uh, Aaron, uh,
0: can you talk a little yeah. bit about uh, difference between a residency and a fellowship for AP? I, well, the, the the
2: the main difference, and John really nailed the two the two degrees of I, I think forces at play in terms of of the organic development over the last ten years. Uh, APPAP is actually um, I'm actually the president elect of that organization, and we just met. Uh, this last uh, couple of weeks in Vegas, for, um, during the uh, PA, uh, the American Academy of PAs uh, puts on their annual deal, and we and we meet uh, twice annually, once there and, and at another place. And one of the main concepts was basically these two areas you touched on, which are the the demograph, which is those entering PA and MP schools, um, vastly changes has changed over the last fifteen years um, from predominantly people under the age of 30, um, predominantly um, coming fresh out of of a bachelor's degree program directly into a master's program and and not really having that kind of real-life, as you said, John, kind of complex uh, exposure to patients. And then the second is NP programs and PA programs, but PA specifically uh, programs, were all based on primary care. They were um, based on the idea that you have these medics coming home from Vietnam, they're extremely well-versed, obviously extremely well-exposed and, and fairly bulletproof in terms of their care of, uh, a lot of sick people. And they, and, and a Navy surgeon named Eugene Stead said, well, let's, he's got a Duke. And he said, well, let's put these guys and gals in, in rural areas and have them practice medicine and they can call us with questions. Um, and that was basically the distilled version of, of uh, what came to be known as physician assistant um, uh, training, and and now there's over 100,000 of us, and and more of us than less of us are not practicing in primary care. Somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of PAs are not practicing in primary care. So the curriculum that's being taught in in entry level programs, as far as PA programs, is is no longer suffice. It's no longer covering. Uh, the arenas that PAs are graduating and wanting to practice in. Um, emergency medicine, orthopedics, uh, and hospital medicine tend to be the majority of where people are practicing. So I think between those things, um, are, are the things that have really directed, um, the creation of a lot of these postgraduate programs and, and, and the APPAP represents 60 to 70 programs now that have And they're constantly kind of coming and going and they're, and they're definitely of this kind of grassroots kind of bootstrapped, hey, let's train people. Let's put people in a year. Let's give them a year. Um, and, and, but at the same time, there are some programs that are training 20 and 30 a year in 13 different subspecialties. So I think that the, the the idea of them becoming, um, a more firm concept is, is that, that boat is probably already left. I think it's probably something that's um you're just gonna end up seeing more and more of. And that has to do with those two those two things we talked about. And whether they're end up they you know are called fellowships and and residencies, the reason I mean bluntly we we chose to change our name to a fellowship was that um there were two or three papers written um uh, basically the year the fourteen I wanna say through fifteen uh that, that stated um that uh attending physicians identify with the concept of a fellowship more than they do a residency in terms of the training goals we were trying to achieve. Um, which was this idea, no, they're they're a great provider already. What we're trying to do is teach them and train them as it relates to this specific uh, uh specialty of medicine. Whereas uh and that that falls a little bit more into into this territory of what a fellow does say in critical care and pulmonology. So again where we end up settling will probably be something that's just more written by the organic creation of a lot of these programs and the need uh, that has developed because of those two factors, rather than uh, any any one term being necessarily better or or more descriptive.
3: And like uh, just to tag on to what Aaron had to say, um, I couldn't agree more in terms of the the, the whole language of fellowship versus residency. Um, for us, we're we're called a residency, and I think that was just there was a little bit more pressure for that terminology when we were developing. Uh, I but I more commonly identify the fellowship terminology in the the APRN world for what we're trying to accomplish with these advanced practitioner tr- transition to practice programs because the the body that accredits these programs uh, for nurses will use residency for a bedside nurse or BSN and fellowship for an advanced practice nurse or nurse practitioner. Uh, As it stands, the, the terminology is very much interchangeable, and I think it would be great if over the next couple of years we can have one universal language which would make this so much easier to to research from a just logging on to PubMed and trying to find out how many fellowships or residencies there are. It's super challenging. And then you have to put in physician assistant, nurse practitioner, physician extender, you get the idea. It's it's difficult. That continues
2: to be a dilemma and, and, and the and the overlay of, of kind of all you know this idea that all roads lead to road. You know, we're all you know, NPs, PAs, you know, like this overlap and this kind of uh, exposure to practice. You know, we we one of the biggest issues continues to be one accreditation of of these postgraduate training programs, and then two this idea of how PAs and NPs kind of get to the to the jumping off point. And I think um, it, it it really it ends up being a lot of semantics, and it ends up being a little bit more of a of a case for people that are more interested in you know um, the, the politics of those two of those two specialties, rather than what I think most postgraduate training programs are trying to do, which is just train you know awesome providers. And so, but I think those two things um, will will likely you know accreditation and and this idea of the overlay of, of what constitutes an advanced provider um, will continue to be a little bit of uh, sticky subjects and, and and a little bit of mired subjects, but.
1: Well, let's try to. Uh, I think those are. I think that's really interesting. Kind of uh, development of the residency and fellowship, you know, names. But but getting back to the actual meat of the training um, itself, maybe you could kind of tell us, um, uh, John. Why don't you start about what sort of the programs kind of look like in terms of their structure? Well, you know, h- how are they? How are they set up?
3: Sure. So there. Uh, first, there. There's a variety of programs out there. Uh, and as I, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's challenging to capture how many exactly exist uh, other than those that are listed on the the APAP and APGAP websites. Uh, but from what I can see, there there are approximately 90 or so of these programs, and when it comes to trauma and critical care, we're, we're down to single digits. Uh, there are only maybe half a dozen at most that I could find. Uh, by searching the just the internet, and so uh, many of these programs uh, they have variable training structures, and that 's one of the issues why accreditation is kind of popping up. you know how do we want to create one one process and validate that process as being the best process and kind of, and, and share it with the other programs but uh, it's it 's so young it 's hard to to capture. For us, and I, I can speak a little bit about our program, the, the way we are structuring it is partnering heavy, heavily with our, um, our surgical residency for our physicians in training, and uh, as, as well as with the critical care uh, lecture series and the anesthesia residents and what kind of uh, material that they receive and the, the critical care fellows receive. And so we provide a structured reading curriculum to all of our advanced practitioner residents uh, that has objectives and evaluations and also has periodic uh, quizzes and provides them feedback as to what they're, they're, um, how they're processing the information. They also participate in uh, trauma morning reports. They go to general surgery, Uh, grand rounds, trauma grand rounds. They participate in basic uh, basic science lectures. They go to all the ICU lectures. They attend a lot of these these canned courses that uh, we've all kind of experienced, such as fundamental critical care support and advanced trauma life supports, those types of courses, so that over the course of the year, they're getting this material we do it with the goal of giving them a gradual independence as they progress over the course of the year. Uh, I've seen some other programs that are a little bit longer, ours being 12 months, I, I came across one trauma and critical care program that uh, I want to say is closer to 16 to 18 months. Uh, and so there's, there's certainly some variability with all of these and uh, something to be said about the duration of the program. Because of course, if you're in a program longer, you're going to get more experience uh, but also what kind of experience it is when you're you're on those those services and how many hours you're getting. Uh, we also mirror a lot of our our hour requirements off of uh, the physician residents and their 80 hour work week. So we want our advanced practitioner residents to be present to get experience, but it also gives them some street cred with the, our physician colleagues. since To paint service, palliative, uh, and so forth.
2: Yeah, uh, John, I can I can completely echo that, and I think um, uh, our our curriculum and and uh, exposure is, is is definitely malleable um, in the sense that you know we we go to these meetings and we sit and talk with other kind of postgraduate directors, and we say, well, what do you do with your program? Well, how are you, how are you you know setting this up, and how are and then as it relates to accreditation, which you mentioned, John, this idea. of, of kind of work hour restrictions, but at the same time, you know, heavy on the, on the exposure and, and then heavy on the curricula, really defining what it is you're providing kind of on paper and, and via ATLS, via lunchtime lectures and shock trauma, via, uh, weekly meetings with the emergency medicine residents. And then just, you know, um, recommending the kind of classic pantheon of, of classic trauma literature, say that the East, uh, repository has and, and things like that tend to be our, Written word and then our, the rest of it really is, uh, um, something that's really kind of ongoing in terms of development. We know we want our fellow and or resident to be in a situation where they're experiencing at least half of the year. You know, our program is 12 months long in trauma. Um, you know, that, that is vacillated between six and eight months. And then the other time is spent doing things to really put the, the provider in a position to do well in terms of all of the other kind of, um, uh, adjunctive kinds of things, so neurosurgery, orthopedics, uh, even airway, you know, we we do a lot of real-time reading of, of radiology, so they spend a week with a radiologist. Um, and then, you know, and then also kind of on the receiving end of some things, too, in the sense of interventional radiology, um, and then also spending a month in the medicine side of things, in pulmonary and critical care in our shock trauma. But, having said that, there's no real Kind of hard and fast, um, uh, best way to do this. And it, and it, and it, it, it feels a little bit like, um, uh, kind of like garage science, you know, where you're, you're really kind of tinkering with what, uh, the best delivery of that, uh, curriculum should be. And I think it, it really speaks to the idea that it is still a little bit of the Wild West in a lot of ways. There, there were some, there was some, there, and there still is, there is some major push to get, uh, these programs in a situation where they can be accredited by an independent body. What has not happened is, is consensus on exactly what that means. And so as a result, programs, and there are guidelines, the, the, the RCPA and APGAP have both put out very reasonably, um, uh, follow along and very, um, uh, should be kind of expected to have guidelines in terms of curricula and keeping uh, residents and fellow states, what they can't decide on is, you know, an ENT fellowship is very different than say, a, a dermatology fellowship. And so just like in, in, you know, and on the MD side of things, there's nobody saying that what is the blueprint for me, for each of these specialties to be taught. And so we're left to kind of, um, put together a curriculum that would most likely match something that trauma and critical care docs train for in their fellowships and I think that's probably the ultimate goal and and it and it, it is already starting to lead to even more kind of
0: organic questions about what fellowships mean for for advanced providers. Okay, so I have a let me let me play devil's advocate here for a second. If I'm um if I'm going to look to uh hire uh an AP into my trauma system, it, it convinced me that uh it would be beneficial to hire somebody who's had a year or more of this formalized training, as compared to hiring somebody and sort of training them in the way that we do things in our center. Does that make sense? I mean, what, how well does this—what uh, you learn in one program transfer to another trauma system, uh, John? Maybe you can address that
3: first. Sure. Uh, so I also I I don't I don't think it's just the fact that one of these graduates has completed a program in and of itself that is valuable. And I do think that is valuable. There's tremendous value there. But it's at this point in time, these programs, they're they're voluntary. They're self-selecting. You're only getting the, the candidates for these programs, the, the applicants for these programs, they see the value in additional lear, uh, learning. They see the value in those extra hours, working 80 hours a, a week. Getting experience on all these other services that are going to complement what they're passionate about. So these these graduates at this point in time in 2017, they are of a much stronger caliber than some of those that don't do the program just because of the personalities that are, are seeking them. Uh, I I found with each you know we've now interviewed three classes of. Of um, A.T. residents, residents, and every year it's becoming more challenging. There, there are more qualified, more, um, more applicants, and a lot. Uh, it's a lot harder to go through and pick. You know how many residents you're going to be able to to take into your program. So I couldn't agree I, with it, you more. Yeah, it's 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 just a it's tremendous. It's very very exciting to see these these young physician assistants and nurse practitioners voluntarily seeking this opportunity out. Uh, But then you you also have to see the value in it. So why would somebody in uh, Utah or on the other side of the country want to hire a graduate from uh, our program? Well, I think it's, you know, seeing that over the course of 12 months, this individual has received two, essentially two years of experience. Because if they got went anywhere else, they would be working forty hours a week. Um, but here, they're working closer to eighty hours a week. They they're getting that continuity with the patients they care for. So instead of coming in and working three twelves, they're coming in for five six days a week and seeing how the decisions they make today are going to affect what happens to the patient the next day and they're following it through they're getting the the hours the the content and then really being challenged by their the attendings that are on the service the the more seasoned experienced mentors and preceptors that are assigned to them to to critically think about the the experiences and the training they're getting so it, it may be a different institution but you're taking a very large amounts of experience and hours, a large volume uh, in taking that with you wherever you go. Uh, And there's, I do think there's value in going elsewhere and seeing how things are done at another institution. Uh, But having a strong foundation will only set you up for success.
2: Yeah, John, I I can't agree more. I think, um, you know, one of our main goals when, um, and I have to give a lot of credit to Mary Harris. She, she was a nurse practitioner on our service that, uh, had this, she got a you know, this bug in her ear to really, she woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to start this, and this residency. And, and she did it with her bare hands. She did it with little to no money. She scraped, uh, cash together for, for, um, uh, a budget in terms of, and one of our pulmonary critical care docs had, had some extra grant money and had some extra, um, uh, kind of, uh, Money to help to get things started, and, and she did a really fantastic job. and And in that seven years, we, you know, our goals have been kind of twofold. We want to we want it's philanthropic, completely philanthropic in nature. We want to train, we want to we want to make uh, advanced providers have bullet, you know, they're bulletproof. We want their jaws locked and their ability to treat anything and anybody, and more importantly, anywhere. We want to be able to train our uh, graduates and send them out into other centers of excellence and, and kind of show off what, what it was we knew how to do. And, um, we've done that. I think it's been, uh, you know, we put the first TA, um, in, in Baltimore shock trauma. Um, we, we have a, another graduate that's in South Carolina that runs, you know, there's part of a, a service that runs a 60 and 70 bed ICU and, and they were positions that had they not done that fellowship, had they not done that residency, um, would likely not be in a position to be top candidates and, and John touches on a really other really important point that it it's so self-selecting. You know, we have collegiate athletes and road scholars and, and valedictorians and, and in the last, I don't know, six to eight months, you know, I probably get 15 to 20 emails a week about people asking about our fellowship. And we're, we're like a mom and pop shop, it's, but it's just me. You know what I mean? So, so the fact that there's that much interest and that much um, means that there is this momentum gaining uh, towards this idea, and I think um, just as John said, the 80 hours a week that that our providers are going to be exposed to and have that under their belt is going to end up meaning something. Now, what we don't know is what the data can't tell us, which is there. There are several things we haven't researched. We don't know whether or not it leads to um, say more pay. We we we. We think it does, and certainly, anecdotally, our evidence from our graduates has led to that. You know, they, they are granted an initial salary that's higher. Um, we know there is, there are three or four papers that suggest that graduating a program suggests that the, the collaborative effort between you and your attending will be better, that your ability to kind of hit the ground running will be better, um, and your ability to take care of patients and feel confident about taking those care of those patients will be better. What we don't know is we don't have any of those primary outcome things. We don't have length of stay. We don't have, you know, health of our patients. We don't have thirty and sixty and ninety day mortality as it relates to training this type of, you know, this type of training in this type of situation. But I I think that um lack you know lack of proof of proof of benefit is a you know proof of lack of benefit. And I think I think that that there will probably it will be the thing that ends up being shown is that these programs make better providers they make them better at a lower cost and th- and then on the other end providers are that much better and that much more equipped in a shorter period of time than they would have been um, had they just gotten on the job training
1: and then lastly
2: I think John's point of, of bringing other centers knowledge as much as we all would don't like to you know we, we wouldn't like to admit it we, we all think that our center you know you know we we, we, we always trust but verify you know and Just all of those things that we think our way is the best way, but, you know, having outside input and having outside flavor to your service does nothing but make it more robust, and I think the idea of having uh, an amalgam of those two systems at play uh, makes for a better service.
3: Yeah, this is a very exciting time for these programs because they're so – they're so new, and the momentum is there, and many of us working on these programs and it, it sounds like Aaron and I are in a very similar position where we're not compensated for the the work that we're putting in on the administrative side. we have very little uh we have very small to almost no budget uh, a lot of the work we are we're pouring into this because we want to see a great product we're we're passionate we want to have our graduates be better than we are, and not only is that. Uh, evidence for our applicants and for people around the country hearing about these programs and seeing the value but there are other uh, hospitals that may not have a program may not have a a fellowship or a residency but they 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 appreciate what is coming out of them and so i don't i don't know if you have that experience Aaron but i'm now starting to get emails from other institutions saying hey we see that you have a a residency program we would love to hire some of your advanced practitioner residents, would you mind uh, sharing our information with them? Yeah, that between that and the on the other side of it, which is,
2: which is several emails uh, a week just from uh, people who are in their first year of their nurse practitioner program or, or PA program are already planning three years ahead to try and be a part of, of, of what we have to offer. And I think, um, and then the other is recruiting firms, you know, people that that uh, recruit for specialty hospitals. As uh, also, known, uh, we've had a number of of things come our way, and I and I, it's hard to know where these stones are kind of going to get thrown. You know, whether it's going to mean kind of canalization, you know, in the sense that well, now you have this PA degree and you're supposed to be able to be, um, you know, totally mobile and can can traverse laterally in, in any specialty you want, and that's kind of true, but it's kind of not. And and the ways that it's not is, you know, if I wanted to go practice dermatology, if I wanted to go, I mean, I've been doing trauma for close to 10 years, and and so my ability to practice other varieties of of medicine is going to be limited. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty versatile. It's trauma and critical care. But at the same time, you know, if I wanted to jump right into, you know, cardiothoracic surgery, if I wanted to jump, like it's just not, I don't know how applicable that is anymore. And then the other half of it is, is you know maybe it is going to lead to you know every specialty has a board you know that we sit for boards on and we have to test out of and 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 you you apply for a job and you know they only accept post post graduate trained PAs or NPs I don't know if that's the future but I think um I don't know how bad that is I don't know how wrong that is to expect I don't know how um if if that truly is a, a an ultimately a downside I think Ultimately, it only makes for um, kind of more certain, more certainty, kind of among our um, uh, our species. You know, our our ability to practice. And so, I think, I think ultimately, while we don't know where it's going to go, I think at the same time it, it leads to uh, a lot of potential for nothing but better
1: care. Ultimately. Yeah. I, I think that's an important question um, as well in terms of you know. I think from as a as a physician, you know, one of the things I certainly like to see in our uh, APs is is you know people who are going to be here for a while and not people who are just always kind of looking for the you know which of these jobs is going to give me a little maybe a little better hours, a little more pay. And so you know, I think maybe you do limit your pool of of people who want to do trauma, but you're getting higher quality people who are more committed to the specialty. And I think that's something that certainly is appealing to me as a as a uh, a physician. Yeah, um, so I, look, amen. I,
0: I agree. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to ask yeah. another question um you know as you <clears throat> were are talking about you know there's, there's sort of some momentum building um for these residency or, and fellowship uh training programs uh how the hospitals responded to that you know training programs you know certainly for physicians can be relatively resource uh, intensive, is your hospital shown support for, for the programs? Well, I can speak to ours. And, uh,
2: three years ago, um, we were finally granted uh, as part of our annual budget to fund uh, the program, and that does include a program for the infrastructure, and money for the for the infrastructure as well. Um, I think one thing we have had to battle a little bit, mostly because it's kind of a logistics thing, you point this out, the, the – the people in the administration go, "Oh yeah, I guess you're right, but one of the things is is we wanted this to be kind of a project related to medicine and philanthropy of medicine, not necessarily a, a hiring mill or a, a way to kind of recruit people um, and there are programs out there that that it is a little bit more of a John, as you mentioned more just truly a transition to practice they 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 keep and retain all of the fellows or residents that that are within that program um, and so one of the things we've had to combat is say, no, that's not the goal here. The goal here is to say, you know, to really train people kind of in this Intermountain trauma way and then send them out into the world and, and have them kind of fly the flag for, for what Intermountain can and, and does every day. And and that was a little bit more of a, a hard thing for the kind of accounting side of things. But I think other than that, I think Intermountain has done a fantastic job um, really embracing kind of our goals and, and how and what we want to do for for advanced providers uh, within our system.
3: And uh, I'll comment that every hospital is gonna have its own or every healthcare institution is gonna have its own challenges for implementing uh, one of these, these programs. Uh, at GW, I was very lucky when a, a physician assistant colleague of mine, uh, the two of us approached our director of the ICU, and our director of trauma, and the CMO, and started having these discussions and gained some support. Uh, And for us, we identified that there were certain vacancies, and our our advanced practitioner residents, when you, you know, kind of list out the advantages and disadvantages to to completing one, uh, one of the disadvantages, depending on how you look at it, is that you're going to be, often you're taking a lower salary. And so we um, – although that may be a disadvantage when you're fresh out of school, it's temporary, and it's pretty much – it's pretty common for most uh, residency programs. We found that to, to help support us getting the physicians and demonstrating that if we're able to uh, train these people appropriately and, and have them be the best uh, PAs and NPs possibly – possible – it's, a, it's kind of like a year-long interview in a sense. Our goal is not to take our, our residents and have them say, we would, we want, would love that. That's a great outcome. Um, but we also want to see some of them go elsewhere. And so if they complete the program and at the end of the year they're successful and they like us and we like them and there's a position available, this is a great pool of candidates to, to retain. Uh, and if not, they go elsewhere elsewhere. Uh, then it helps us to evaluate our program and say, hey, are we really training these individuals appropriately, or are we only showing them the GW way? And so there's there's information to gain there, and there's, um, there's a lot to learn. And I think for most of these programs, as they mature and grow, the, there's a lot more data that will come out of it. Uh, but I think for every hospital, whether whether or not you have a supportive administrative uh, suite uh, or not, it's it's going to be a bit individualized. And sometimes it'll also be, you know, whether or not the university is on board or if it's the hospital itself, like what that relationship is.
2: And it will make and break your program. There, there are a number of programs that just kind of, you know, fall on their face after the first couple of years because they don't they don't have that support for sure. And they're good programs.
0: Well, uh, thanks for all this information. I mean, it's actually fascinating to hear about because it sounds like there are careers to be made in the development, organization, accrediting, credentialing, curriculum building. I mean, it sounds like there's nothing but uh, potential here in the the future for for people who are interested in building this kind of thing. Um, Just since we're real close on on time here, Are there resources, webpages, or any sort of central repositories for these types of things for people who are interested? There a place where they can go to look, see what fellowship programs are out there, um, and and those types of things. Any anything that you'd recommend or direct people to? Well, certainly the the you know the Association of Postgraduate
2: PA Programs, um, you know that that it it does have a the two things that that really um, are of benefits to the listed programs there. Um, is that they 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 have a curriculum they have a set of uh, parameters they have a set of uh training guidelines that are that are vetted um and that you're assured uh that the program you're going to be involved with um you know what, while there is no gold standard for accreditation at this point in postgraduate training they have assumed uh the most current and most recent versions of those things as they exist um and uh and prior to listing anything, uh, APAP, um, really makes sure that the program has all of those things in play. Um, the other place is really, uh, a lot of, like, Facebook, to be quite honest, and, and Twitter are both great places to find more about, um, kind of postgraduate training. And then a lot of, it, it, I think it's worth mentioning as well, a lot of these programs, they're, they're up to their neck in terms of, like, keeping it running and keeping it going. And so persistence is going to be the thing that leads you to getting somebody on the phone. Persistence is going to be the thing that leads you to get your email answered. If you are interested, really, really, um, you know, just try and get them on the phone. Um, Program directors, uh, for the most part, and the ones that I've run into, um, you know, that's the the way that you can really start a dialogue and and learn more
3: about programs. I will also say that the the sister organization to APAP, AFGAP, the Association of Postgraduate ATRN Programs, they also have a list. Uh, they're a much younger, uh, they're a much younger organization than have and uh, are kind of building. But both websites have a great uh, number of resources and are helpful for identifying programs. Uh, there are two um, accreditation bodies for the nurse practitioner side of things. And just as a, a disclaimer, I, I still think that. Accreditation is so new that just because a program is or is not accredited, um, it doesn't, that shouldn't make or break a program or discourage somebody from booking at one, uh, especially since there's no active body accrediting, accrediting the PA side of things. But if someone was to go on to the ANCC, uh, the American Nursing Credentialing Center, or the other body, which is called the National Nurse Practitioner Residency and Fellowship Training Consortium, those two websites, uh, which you can just Google, have listings of which programs are accredited and how they're they're pursuing that process but again, I don't think um, having their their stamp of approval makes or breaks a program just yet I just think it's it's helpful to know that those exist uh, there's also East uh, not many people know but EAST's own website, you can search for jobs, and you can search for fellowships. And as of a year or two ago, and there aren't many listed, you can search for uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioner fellowships. And it's free to, at least at this point in time, as far as I understand, it's free to be listed on there. And you can have programs, um, the contact information and the program director's information available. So I think looking into the to EAST, uh, what's listed there, and, you know, sometime in the future, I think it would be wonderful if uh, EAST would, you know, put together a recommended list of uh, of programs for trauma, emergency general surgery, and critical care, and how to mm-hmm. access them. And then finally, just to say what Aaron uh, mentioned about the program directors, Absolutely, reach out to them. And it's it's a red flag if you send an email and you don't get a response or if there's a phone number and you don't get a response in a matter of uh, – a respectable matter of time. Uh, because the most part, all of us were were passionate about these programs. We want them to be successful, and we want to, to help support those uh, who are debating
1: whether or not this is right for them. Well, John and Aaron, I just uh, want to thank you guys for taking the time to talk to us about um, training programs uh, and uh fellowships uh, for advanced practitioners in uh, trauma. Um, and we uh, we again appreciate you, you being on the show with us today.
2: No, thank you. It's been a, it's been a real honor to be here and talk with you guys. Thanks
3: so much. Thank you. It's it's been my it's been a complete pleasure. I'm grateful to be included.
0: All right. And we'll post links uh, to the websites that you mentioned as well along with the episode. So if you're listening and you want to go find more, we will have links on the East webpage for these. things. Thank you both. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.